Welcome everyone to Coffee and an Interview. I'm Jacqueline Pena and I'm here today with Bill Cohen from Cohen Caregiving Support Consultants. Bill, welcome to the show. Hi Jackie, I'm really excited to be here. It's an honor, thank you. Well, I, I'm really excited. Uh, I don't know if excited is the right word to use with some of the things that are going on in our lives, but I was very excited for this conversation because you focus your work on Alzheimer's and dementia, specifically looking at caregivers. And uh, that's a newer world for me, one that I'm experiencing now. So it's definitely uh, an educational opportunity for me and I hope for our listeners as well. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about your story? What got you to do this kind of work specifically? Thank you for asking. Yeah, if you had told me about 16, 17 years ago, what was going to transpire, and I'd be sitting here talking to you today and doing what I do, I'd say you're crazy. It just doesn't, it's not believable. So back around 2004, give or take, I'm, where, I'm out in Portland, Oregon, uh, working full-time for the state of Oregon, completely unrelated job. <laughs> My mom was living in Biloxi, Mississippi. I'm not from there. She lived there almost 30 years. And she was starting to show some signs of something. We weren't sure what, but she wasn't taking care of the finances. She wasn't taking care of the house. Uh, she was showing confusion, agitation, memory loss, paranoia, things like that. And she was in the caregiver role herself for my late stepfather, Dr. Joe. And he had all kinds of medical problems, not gonna get into that, but we were wondering, if he passed away or went into a care community because he was on hospice on and off, would she bounce back? But we never got that opportunity because what happened in August 2005 in New Orleans and the Mississippi Gulf Coast? Yes. Katrina. Cool. Yes, Katrina. Their home was completely swept away in the storm surge. She was safe, she had evacuated, but she fully expected to come back to that house. Needless to say, the trauma of seeing it gone exacerbated, accelerated her condition. Skipping forward a little bit. So she evacuated with step family to North Carolina. I started doing the long distance caregiving, making trips uh, to the East Coast. Uh, I could tell some stories about how to deal with, but I wanna move forward. From here, I started talking to uh, a care community in Oregon because I was planning on moving around here eventually. I started attending a support group. And then after she also was in for a little while close to you in Delray Beach with my one aunt, we moved her out here to Oregon and she was in a care community for a few years, four of which were memory care. Mm. And she passed away eight and a half years ago at age 83. Now, after she passed away, and I could talk about the fact that I was completely stressed during that time period because of uh, the caregiving and all the responsibilities, although I had a lot of support in my family, I also had a very difficult work situation, a very difficult supervisor, and my stress level was sky high. Fortunately, after mom passed away, that person retired, my stress level came down to much better. But I was attending the support group for a while thinking, okay, I'll help others go through their journey like others helped me. I became the facilitator and I'm still the facilitator to this day of that same group 16 years later. Wow. And I do to others as well. 
And, but I, and then I get involved with the walk to end Alzheimer's and fundraising and other volunteering and advocacy at our state capitol. Now, as I approached retirement from a, as I said, unrelated state job, I was thinking, okay, I'll just do more volunteer work. But I came across five, about five years ago, this concept of being a caregiving support consultant. Mm -hmm. And I did my research and started it about almost uh, about four and a half years ago. And basically what I do is I help people with advice, support, resources, referrals, help them manage the care and the behaviors, practice self-care and prevention. I collaborate with all the different service providers and professionals and help reduce their stress, help them sleep better at night, help them, uh, if they had a perfect world, what can I take off their plate? What can I help reduce that stress over so that uh, they can manage not just their care of their loved one, but take care of themselves? And that's pretty much what I do. And then I became... Uh, a little over two years ago, a certified senior advisor, which provides me with a broader perspective and background, covers all the different areas of senior care, not just dementia care, and a holistic approach. It's not just one facet of the dementia care journey, but all of it. And so I try to collaborate with and bring together the team to help take care of the loved one and the caregiver. I can give you a really quick example. There's actually a connection with your area. There's a lady uh, here in uh, Portland. Her family is in South Florida uh, with her mom who has dementia, her two siblings, her, her aunt, her tia. She's actually from Panama originally herself. And, she, um, and we get on a Zoom call with the family and with a resource there in South Florida who I first contacted five years ago, who's also a certified senior advisor, we needed an elder law attorney. We needed a geriatric physician. We needed in-home care. We brought the, those elements together so that the family could take care of mom better. Okay. So that's what I do. And so to make a, sum it up, I took my personal loss, my pain, and turned it into my passion and what I like to use the term encore career. I, I like that term, encore career. And in terms of this podcast and this episode, it is uh, individuals who've become empowered through their own personal journeys and use that uh, experience to empower others. And in terms of my situation, I think I definitely have to uh, talk to you on a personal level about making these connections because I have found myself unexpectedly taking care of someone with dementia and my father um, and trying to balance that out and doing it as a team, but we can be much more effective um, for that. So it actually is going to lead to the next couple of questions that I have for you. Number one is the work you do focusing on caregivers is so critical. And I think it's an interesting time because I look around and I feel like the number of cases are increasing. Um, people are getting uh, dementia at earlier ages. Can you Speak a little bit to that because I, I find that more people are becoming caregivers because of that or um, might be becoming caregivers in the next few years and at younger ages. Yes, most of the figures I'm hearing right now are roughly, there's about 6 million people living with some form of dementia in the United States. There are about 15 million unpaid family caregivers 
and it represents about or over 350 billion with a B of unpaid care. And those figures are all expected to grow exponentially in the next 20, 30 years. Wow. Because Alzheimer's in particular, but also most forms of dementia, uh, most are not curable. There is no real treatment yet. It's expensive. And in the case of Alzheimer's, it's the sixth leading cause of death. And it's the only one in the top 10 that does not have a cure or treatment as of yet. But I think we think we're getting closer. Little by little, with the with the work that we do through our foundations and trying to find the cure and do research, we're getting there. But the reality is that more and more of us are becoming caregivers, whether we wanted to or not. Mm-hmm. And in, like in your case, many of us have complicated lives. We might have our own families. We might be living in another state. We might have very complicated or stressful jobs. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's very challenging to sometimes even have to uproot yourself and your family members and everything to be able to become a caregiver. But you love the person at the same time. So then you feel guilty that you feel overwhelmed by the process. Uh, and I'm assuming this is part of the work that you do as a caregiver consultant. Because so many caregivers, they feel guilty. They're filled they're not doing enough. Am I making the right decisions? Second guessing left and right. And as I always tell people, you're doing the best you can. Who has training for this? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, to some extent, say raising children has some similarities, but still very different. And we don't even have kids. It's only added. I had an early 70s childlike person or person with childlike behaviors on my hands. No previous experience. Experience, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's partially my case. <laughs> partially in my case. So we talked a few challenges, but can you share what are some of the challenges that you see caregivers facing as they take care of parents or other loved ones who have dementia? Mm-hmm. So going back to when at the beginning of my journey, and like I said, it was pretty unbelievable, wasn't it? That I could go from there to here. But back then in the early mid 2000s, there weren't the resources that we have now include uh, directories and even the internet didn't have that much information. Now the issue is there's so much information, but there's also a lot of misinformation Mm -hmm. and we don't know, okay, can we trust those resources, those providers? Uh, So it's easier to find, but is it the right ones for us? So how I try to help people, and again, as a coordinator and coach, a guide, somebody the other day uh, called me a quarterback, (laughs) (laughs) right, to help find those resources, get that education, get that awareness, and how to handle those different behaviors and the medications and the right people to go on, because not everybody is going to end up in a care facility. Not everybody uh, needs... Uh, respite care. Not everybody even needs an elder law attorney. They may have all those things in place, but many don't. And that's usually uh, one thing I love to talk about is definitely talk to an elder law attorney. Have the discussion with your family first. Don't mm-hmm. shove it on the rug uh, or, or say, well, they're fine. They don't need help. They're just getting old. They're getting tired. But have the discussions when you're seeing those first signs that are concerning, like you're home for the holidays and mom's recipe doesn't taste the same. Mm-hmm. Or dad walks into the room and looking around and doesn't know why he came in or, or even what room it is. 
or you notice they have a brand new car. How come there's scratches and dents on it? Could be mm -hmm. some various things like that. Or you suddenly see some unpaid bill notices in the mail, things like that. So you, this is when the family needs to have, whether it's a single caregiver or several family members have those discussions. And it's not about you, it's about the care, the person living with dementia. It's mm -hmm. not your agenda, it's what's in their best interest. You're not gonna agree on every little item, but you wanna at least have, get everybody on the same page. This is what our loved one needs. This is what our person needs. You bring up some good points before we even take on the role of caregiver. You, you're, you're giving us pointers on how to open our eyes and just absorb, the, you know, observe the environment a little bit better and, and see what are the differences in my loved one's behavior. Mm -hmm. um, examples of the recipe, the mail. Um, I remember seeing that confused look like, like, you know, even one time, like, who's this person next to me confused look? And I thought, no, no way. He has to know who that is. And and just by then, it probably had been a couple of years of symptoms that we missed mm -hmm. with my own father. So being more aware of these changes in behavior so that we're able to provide care earlier and the right kind of care for, for our loved one. Yes. And then along with that, I definitely suggest that people educate themselves. Mm -hmm. Look into the research, and one of the best places to start is the Alzheimer's Association, which does cover all kinds of dementia, and that's very easy to remember. It's A L Z dot O R G. A lot of the support groups, education, resources, information, and it's all over the country. So great organizations. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful because one of the things that's happening with me is I've become overwhelmed with the information. And in trying to find resources, I get overwhelmed and I click here and it opens a search page that's under a company and they're just trying to sell me something. And then I click over here and it's information not relevant to my situation. And, uh, and so I think it's important to know what are some of the trusted resources mm -hmm. online that we can go to. And then what are some of these uh, kinds of support networks and support uh, programs like your program that we could turn to to kind of put the pieces together mm -hmm. and support groups even if you're not near one right now and the Alzheimer's association of course has their own most of them are still virtual and you mm -hmm. can access them anywhere all three of mine are uh virtual right now so i get people from all over the country including on my facebook group which is uh support uh, dementia support group for caregivers with bill cohen Perfect. And all these resources will be in the episode description for our listeners. So all the names of these resources with the links will be there for you so that you can go and check out the Facebook group, check out the Alzheimer's organization and try to find those resources. Yes, exactly. So and support groups will provide a confidential, supportive, helpful, safe uh, environment. And I found, like I said, I found it beneficial back then 16 years ago, and like I said, I'm still attending, even though I'm not a caregiver anymore. And it gets into that self-care area and support area in general, because that can take on many different identities. It isn't necessarily just your family. Mm -hmm. It could be your neighbors. It could be your friends. It could be ex-coworkers. It could be charitable or religious organizations in your neighborhood. And you, in, I have to say, self-care is not selfish. It is vital. And too often, 
caregivers become burned out, sick, or worse, and may, in many cases, if not most, predecease the person with dementia. And that's tragic. It shouldn't happen. It's, it's avoidable. I can tell you a quick story about one caregiver. Um, mm -hmm. I could see that he was stressed out. He was uh, really going through a tough time. Coincidentally, his wife was a gerontologist and she ended up getting Alzheimer's and she didn't want anybody to know. And He was trying to keep it within the family. And I asked him some very blunt questions. I said, so is it that you, nobody else can do it as well as you? You don't want to admit that you can't handle it? Uh, is it denial? Is it that you have control issues? He says, all of the above. He admitted it. He said it. Yeah. And that's why he finally reached out for help. He needed it. So that's very important that people take those steps and ask, because even with the family, even if there's one person who's the primary caregiver and handling it, everybody can take on a different role, such as handling the finances ordering things, making phone calls, talk to the legal people. So it doesn't fall upon just one person. My family did help me a lot in many different ways over the course of that journey, but I was still prime, the primary person. I think, I, I think you also made a great case for, you can have a primary caregiver, but then it's really a team, but someone has, still has to lead a team. There's a coach. Or, so, so looking at it from that perspective, I think many of us become caregivers and we become enclosed and our life revolves around the loved one we're taking care of. And we stop taking care of ourselves and we close the doors for other people to come and help us. We don't know how to open that and how to use those available resources. And, uh, and many of us are embarrassed or, or, or just feel bad asking because we already know what, how stressful it is for us or the things we might be giving up in life to be able to be a caregiver. We don't want to ask that of anyone else. Right. I, I love to tell a very simple but slightly humorous uh, version of how all you have to do is ask many times. People don't know what to do or, unless you ask them. Mm -hmm. And mom was in hospice. It was the last couple of weeks. I was staying overnight. And one morning I got on Facebook and I said, could somebody please bring me a mocha latte? <laughs> two, two different friends showed up from two different coffee places. <laughs> yep, yep. Sometimes you just need to ask for help and you'd be yeah, surprised right. at uh, how people yeah. show up. But most of us don't know how to do that. <laughs> and even though it was a very good care community, they took great care of mom. The coffee was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But, you know. You knew people were there for, and were able to go to, up for bat for you. They could take yeah, care exactly, of you. Exactly. Um, you said, I mean, I wrote it down. Uh, Self-care is not selfish. It is vital. And self-care is one of the key things that we need to do as caregivers. What are some other things you feel that we who are transitioning to caregiving roles or our full-on caregivers need to do or think about in order to preserve our own health and sanity so that we can keep caring for our loved ones? The biggest problem that I find the caregivers do, uh, I was doing a, uh, a course for caregivers, caregivers called SAVI, which is evidence-based. It was developed by Emory University. And one of the exercises we did was, imagine if you had two hours, four hours, a whole day, a whole weekend, 
with no caregiving responsibilities. What would you do with those that time? And I remember one person in the course said, maybe a couple of hours, but any longer than that, I can't envision it. I can't see it. How am I going to get that time? How am I going to leave my spouse? All right. And the whole idea of the exercise is, okay, whether you go for a massage or you take a, a bath with essential oils and bubbles or whatever you're going to do, or you go for coffee with some friends or go to a hotel for a weekend and get some sleep, uh, you start envisioning, okay, I want those things. I need that. And I'm going to find a way to make it happen, whether I'm asking a family member to come in for a few hours or a weekend or bring in a home in-home care agency to watch my loved one. Mm-hmm. Because it is vital that you take that time. And there, yes, we've been limited during COVID on some things we could do. But for instance, getting taking them to an adult daycare uh, service, which my mom's uh, care community had. We use that quite a bit. Or a temporary stay, respite stay at a care community so that the person, the caregiver can take some time off. Maybe mm-hmm. take a week and go for a vacation, which they need if they don't have a family member who is willing or able to come in and do it. Yeah. You'll find, find a way, whether it's paid or volunteer. Yeah. You need that. Right? You do. I think I'm at that stage. I mean, I'm very lucky because I'm not a team of one. Mm-hmm. And um, someone else has been taking more of the leadership role so I can help in some other areas in the family. But I need to step in and take that leadership role back. And, and I think the hardest thing is trying to find people who try to make sure that you find people who can help you so that you can take those two hours off. So you could take those four hours off. And for those of us who work remote and I went remote before COVID, um, but for those of us who are still remote because of COVID or because we do work remote, it gets a little tricky because we're blending our personal life and our work life and we might we might need a little time to just even focus on work for an hour a day without too many distractions, depending on the stage of dementia that your loved one is in. It's um, like even when I was at my full-time job and yeah. even I know that mom was in a care community and she was safe and getting good care. She was always on my mind. So that was not helping my stress. Every time the phone rang, especially the care community would pop up, blah, blah, home. And I said, Oh, and they'd always say, don't worry, Sheila's fine. You know, your mom's fine, but you know, a little thing. And they wanted to let me know they were good communicators. But yeah, it was constant. I mean, it becomes 24 seven, whether you're the hands-on full-time caregiver or you're handling everything else. Yeah. Absolutely. You need a break. You need a break. Yeah. Now, um, what other tips of advice? I, I'm gonna stay on this particular topic and then move to other ways that caregivers can take care of themselves so they can care for their loved ones. But uh, in my case, <laughs> I gotta, you know, my father has quite the mouth <laughs> mm-hmm. and seems to hate anyone who's a stranger, uh, who is most people who are new to his life because he doesn't remember them uh, the next, you know, an hour later mm-hmm. and hates men and really hates men who are strangers. And, uh, mm. and so, it, you know, it can get a little, 
you know, interesting mouthwise with the bad words or, uh, you know, maybe one day even physical, I hope not. So for those of us who are caregivers to people who have attitude issues or language issues or who could become a little violent with other caregivers who are not part of the family, what, I mean, how do we, how can we handle that? How do we, how do we create a team when the, when the person who we're caring for doesn't want that team, only wants you? Yeah, and and unfortunately, they can't make that decision for themselves. They they can't, it it's not their place because they've gotten to the point where they can't not function on that level. That's one of the things, unfortunately, that goes. So we have to find ways to frame it or to almost manipulate the situation with your team of physicians, caregiver of you know professional caregivers or in home care or people in the care community. And it's gonna be a combination of some medications, mm-hmm. but also good, well-trained people or yourself where you find activities to keep them occupied, to keep them engaged. In fact, again, that caregiving course, the, uh, the term we use was contented involvement. Because think about when they are acting out. Yeah. Showing anger, frustration, uh, get me out of here type of thing, or where's, where's so-and-so, would you agree that they're probably just bored a lot of the time? They don't know what to do because they can't take that decision. I mean, if you ask your dad, what do you want to do, dad? What does he say most of the time? I don't know. Mm, right? whatever or, you want. or conversely, do you want to do this? No. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I don't use the yes or no question because it's always no. <laughs> Do not use yes or no questions. It, so, Dad, would you like to do such and such work on this puzzle, or would you, or would you like? Shall we go have lunch now? Which would you like to do? Because it's not as likely to re, to object because you're giving them choices, but you're keeping them simple. And then, in terms of tasks or activities, they, they're still the same person. They're still in there. They're capable of quite a few things, even things they probably used to like. They may not do it as well as they used to. They may not do it as quickly as they used to. They may not do it the way you would do it or correctly. Yeah. And you got to let go of that. <laughs> Is give them things that are broken down into simple tasks, simple steps in a good environment with few distractions. And it could be even folding towels. It can be doing a puzzle. It can be listening to music. But not just sitting in front of the TV, which is absolutely mindless, because if we can get them mentally active, physically active, socially active, it's going to slow the progression, if not plateau. This is good advice, because as caregivers, we don't always know what we can do with our loved ones who are caring for. And uh, part of it could be to create this. I, I love lists, but this list or this master plan of a bunch of different activities that cover these three areas and then um if there's a gap in time and and you're trying to engage um keep you know keep your loved one engaged you could pick something from that activity right and And some people do it like like those plastic buckets like container store or whatever Mm -hmm. and have some activities ready to go Mm -hmm. in there Mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, look up a uh uh, i don't think i gave you this uh, resource look up dabble sack Dabble sack. Dabble sack. D-A-B-B-L-E-S-A-C-K. They've got a lot of great activities, games, puzzles that can be used either in a care community or uh, or at home 
I've actually been using them in, a, in my memory cafe, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with those, where you have the, the person with dementia and the caregiver doing things together, whether it's music or art or puzzles or virtual bingo, uh, things like that. And I've used a couple of their games, which are fantastic. And they, they enjoy it because if you think about it, one of them is from um, called the Memory Cafe Directory and Memory Joggers, where you finish the sentence like a uh, rolling stone gathers no moss, right? And remember, they're dealing with short-term memory loss. Mm -hmm. Their old memories from back when they were younger and growing up, they've been using those terms all their lives. So that stays with them. They answer those very, very well. Even people with mild cognitive impairment, MCI, or early stage dementia. Very, very interesting, actually. And um, I, I, I'm going to check this out. And I'm definitely putting this on the list of resources in the description area for this podcast episode. But um, for many of us, we might not have a toolkit of activities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a reader and a writer and a TV person. So there, you know, so my toolkit is limited to keep my own father entertained um, or engaged as we want to say. And so having a toolkit, I think will help and things that you could do together, uh, but also things that that person can do on his or her own so that you're able to focus on other things. Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you need to work on a project that you work from home or something like that, or do laundry. Um, I try to keep my, uh, you know, my father engaged in the things I'm doing. So I'll have him sweep. Sure. I'll have to sweep after he's done probably. <laughs> one of those but you know you'll sweep the house you'll help me carry the clothes to the washing machine yeah yeah as long as they're safe mm -hmm. as long as there's no danger because obviously at this point he, he i don't know if he ever cooks anything you probably don't want him operating in the kitchen with the stove you don't want him using power tools <laughs> no 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 yeah, and he doesn't remember to turn off the stove so we definitely don't want that <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, on um on this note as well you know one of my fears as a caregiver but as the daughter of someone whose father has dementia but whose grandparents on both sides have dementia um is also getting dementia myself and not being able to care for others and i'm and i'm worried because i'm seeing a lot of early onset dementia um can you talk a little bit about you know what ages we're seeing dementia and what are some strategies we could use to prevent or slow down um, dementia for ourselves as caregivers, but also these same strategies that we could use as caregivers with our loved ones. I'm going to talk first a little bit about, uh, about my mother's situation. Hmm. Yes, we have to factor in genetics and yes, we need to factor in age, but we're seeing people in their forties and fifties getting early onset. And my mom was symptomatic in her early 70s, which means it was developing well before that. So uh, that was almost getting into the early onset. Mm -hmm. Genetics, in my family's case, nobody else on my mother's side has it. We had, I'm, we're probably seeing a little bit of mild cognitive impairment, but nobody has Alzheimer's or other form of dementia. Um, and again, dementia is the umbrella term for all kinds uh, of dementia and then Alzheimer's. That uh, vascular, frontotemporal, et cetera, those are other different types of dementia. But there's increasing evidence, and I'll tell you why in a moment, that my mom is like the poster child. 
she was living on the Mississippi Gulf Coast with toxins, pollution, chemicals. Mm. Food's great, but you know it, what's in there is a problem. She used to smoke, didn't exercise, barely walked the dog to the corner. She was in the caregiving role for my late stepfather. That was wearing her down, stressing her out. They were socially isolated a few miles off the Gulf Coast. And she was a master printmaker, as well as an artist and a teacher, uh, using the intaglio process, where she was etching into metal plates and then putting it into an acid bath. And this is for over 20 years. So we think, and there's increasing evidence of this, that her environment and her own lifestyle and behavioral choices were as big factors, if not more so, than uh, genetics and age. So what we are getting better at, we still don't have an absolute cure. There's no magic pill, silver bullet, but we're getting better at understanding why Alzheimer's and other dementia happen at diagnoses and possible treatments. It probably will be a combination of some medication and getting people to uh, alter their, their lifestyle choices. So mm -hmm. they are not eating. You may have heard the acronym CRAP. <laughs> well, I know the word CRAP, but the not the acronym. <laughs> but it's also the colas and added sugars and processed foods and things like that. Yeah. Stay away from that. We don't want to get into fad diets or anything like that because every diet is individual and you'd want to talk to a nutritionist or a functional medical person. But something along the lines of the Mediterranean diet is a good rule to follow because it is balanced, especially the low calorie one, because you're talking about good fats. Fats are not a bad thing, but you want good fats like avocado and nuts and uh, salmon, things like that. Good carbs like the whole grain brown pastas and rice, as opposed to the white ones, which just turn to sugar. Mm. Right. And watching the sugar, the, uh, the stomach has sometimes been called uh, type three diabetes. So we want to watch the, the uh, sugar intake, alcohol intake, things like that. Because I, and I'm, I'm doing this, you're, your listeners can't see me, but I'm hitting my stomach, heart, and head that. Gut health, heart health, brain health, it's all interrelated. Mm -hmm. And again, you want to be as physically active, socially active, and mentally active as possible. And that's where those games and activities go into play as well. I don't have those same risk factors as my mom, but mm -hmm. because of it, the possibility, I'm very proactive about my health and practice a lot of the things that I was talking about. Especially if you're caring for a family member, and especially if you see that it could be genetic, because um, you know it's it's imprinted. It goes it's that, it goes down in the DNA and everything like that. But I wanted to check that that's why it's important for early diagnosis, yeah. so that you can start adopting some of those same things for your person that may end up getting dementia. It's yeah. never too late because you can slow the progression. You can delay the progression. So you actually are leading to my next question. But before I get to that question, just the fact that we can use these strategies to take care of ourselves, but to take care of our loved ones um, so that we can slow down the progression. But now let's talk about testing, um, because some of us. Uh, I know people who uh, might be showing early signs, uh, not early onset, but early signs of dementia. 
and are scared to get tested or don't know what it takes or what it entails. And I myself would love to, if I if I have any concerns with myself later on, would want to get tested. So what, what can we do to be able to get tested to get a sense of our own uh, brain function and where we are in terms of dementia? Unfortunately, most primary care physicians have very little training in geriatrics yeah. and nutrition. And most will not, unless you get somebody who has that training or maybe leans a little more towards the functional medicine or naturopath side, mm -hmm. are not going to be looking to test you yet or what have you. They may ask you some questions. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing that, feeling that, uh, et cetera? I'm going to give the example. I'm actually in a clinical trial at our local medical university here in Portland, Oregon. As a volunteer, I don't have any signs. Uh, I, I, they did, ran me through some tests at first to see whether I qualify. And some of them are really hard. And I go, can go through some of that stuff. I said, did I pass the audition? <laughs> <laughs> I was really concerned. She said, don't worry, Bill, you're fine. Some of these tests are really difficult. Uh, I was considered clinically normal. But I'm in the trial because I am the son of a person who had Alzheimer's. There was no question. We never got an autopsy. We knew what she had. Yeah. But along with doing the memory tests, like giving you 20 words, and then you repeat them back. And then a few minutes later, have you repeat them again? Or there's a three short three-paragraph story. Okay, tell me as much as you can about that story that we just read. And then they're going to ask you that again later. Again, testing short-term memory drawing the clock, as you've probably heard about, who's the president, what's the date uh, today. But they will also do uh, blood tests, your lab tests. They can do an MRI, they can do a PET scan, they can do the lumbar puncture uh, test, things like that. So I went through that whole uh, regimen. I'll never know the results, but it's helping the overall research. Mm. But as I said, it is difficult. It is hard enough for somebody who has full cognitive abilities to go through those tests. And it's not something to be scared of, but it, it shows how comprehensive it is. But again, it's still just tools between those tests and the uh, physician's observations yeah. and what they're hearing from the family. And this is where journaling and documenting could be very helpful, not only for your own purposes, so you are writing down your thoughts and your feelings about what you're going through, but also you can report this to the physician. This is what we're seeing. In the late afternoon, is this sundowners? Is this where they get agitated, et cetera? When the sun is coming down late afternoon, they're getting tired. And what are the symptoms? What are the behaviors you're seeing at that time? Because then you can possibly say, okay, we know this time is coming. Let's get them involved with this. So hopefully they will not be agitated and nervous or waking up in the middle of the night, that type of thing. Mm. So if we provide that information to the physician, they can get a much bigger picture than that unfortunately short window that we spend in the doctor's office. Yeah, which is getting shorter. My last physical was literally three minutes. I got some hands pushed, something shoved in my ear, checked my throat and quick little touch for two birds or something that she said, and that's it. Goodbye, doctor. And then she forgot I was in the room and left me there. <laughs> And I'm not trying to criticize the doctor. She's actually great. But the medical system, the way it's set up, she's required to meet with a certain number of patients per hour. 
mm-hmm. in, her, in the medical practice. And so in that short period of time, you really can't tell if there's a, an issue um, from yeah. the medical perspective. So you have to speak up. You have to be your own advocate and the advocate exactly. for the person you're taking care of. Right. Exactly. And I was going to say that, that yes, you have to be their advocate as well because they can't speak for themselves. And that includes the medical professionals. That includes uh, the people at a care community, et cetera. You, uh, like as far as medications is a good example. Mm-hmm. There's too much polypharmacy where they're uh, prescribing so many different medications. And if they're not coordinated by somebody, how do those, all those medications interact? Mm-hmm. So I say, you may want to get a second opinion. You may want to take that list of medications to your pharmacist and say, what do all these do? Are they serving any benefit at this point or should we remove some? When mom was getting closer uh, in the last few months on hospice, I said, if none of these are helping her at this point, like Namenda or whatever, any of the other medications, which only temporarily help the symptoms and are not a cure, uh, let's get her off these. Does she even need the, the antidepressant or the anti-anxiety medication anymore? And when it got towards the end, I said, I just want to increase the morphine for her. So she is not in pain. She's not uh, uncomfortable. And I'd even say, I'll have what she's having. <laughs> <laughs> I needed it myself, but no, I didn't use that. <laughs> yeah, but that makes sense. Um, and I think it's important to understand the symptoms of dementia so that as a caregiver, it, you balance things out, understand the medication that um, is being prescribed because you don't know about the interactions or the effects, or is it even worth prescribing this considering the side effects for what it's doing? Um, and then I, I just had another question pop up and, and I know we're getting towards the end, we're wrapping up, but sleep, I noticed that that's another thing where um, as a caretaker, I'm noting an increase in the number of hours that the person sleeps at night, no napping in the daytime, but at night, and um, there were times when we were worried because you know he wasn't coming out of his room; <laughs> he was still sleeping in the morning. But I realized um, taking care of another person recently, he, that person sleeps all day and night, like lots of naps. And uh, is that is that a common symptom? And where else can we learn about other symptoms of dementia so that we as caregivers are prepared to work with them and where we don't freak out when we see a new symptom that actually is part of the process. Right. So, yeah, I think the best thing to do is to look at on the Alzheimer's Association Mm -hmm. website earlier and look for those 10 signs of Alzheimer's and they will give you a good idea of things to be looking for uh, besides memory loss, disorientation, uh, not being able to function, do the tasks that they used to be able to do easily. Uh, Sleep is definitely uh, increasing. Sleep is definitely a symptom. Uh, the, the body is starting to shut down mm. and they need to, they're conserving what energy they do have. So yes, it's a concern, but unfortunately it is part of the process, but we also need to be talking in terms of the sleep of the caregiver. Yeah. That's a whole other issue. Let's not talk about that this week. I've barely slept and I have not worked out in two weeks. Yes, I, I understand. <laughs> and, and mothers, women in particular, can relate to this in the fact that they have interrupted sleep because kids are always up at different hours or they're having toothache or whatever it is. And it's the same thing happened when you're getting into caregiving for a loved one. And it is primarily, although men are stepping up more, women are in the caregiving role mm-hmm. or their loved ones with dementia. 
and their sleep is getting interrupted again. And th this is why this is a women's issue with the caregivers, the care recipients, and the service providers and professionals are vast majority women, like 80, 85%. And my social media platforms uh, bear that out. Those are you know, the, the people involved. Although, uh, like I said, more men are stepping into that caregiver role, which is a good thing. So it goes back to, if you are not getting enough sleep, that increases your risk for dementia yourself. Mm. So it's important that you have, find a way that they're sleeping through the night, you're getting your, your sleep as much as possible, or somebody else is watching them so that you can, can get your rest because that is going to affect your own health long-term. Mm -hmm. So I need to get my eight hours. I need to do something about that. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> oh good quality, uh, long, quantity and quality of sleep, absolutely. Yes. Oh my goodness, Bill. You, you've armed me with so many uh, strategies and resources, and it's been an amazing conversation. I wanted to take a moment to kind of just recap um, all these uh, strategies for caregivers to be able to care for themselves so they can keep caring for their loved ones. Can we just go through like the top strategies, uh, list them off very quickly for our listeners? Because it's been an amazing conversation full of information for us to take away and use. Well, the top ones, yes. Again, educate yourself. Uh, take care of the, the legal uh, and form the team. Mm -hmm. Mine became Team Sheila, my mother's name, and it became my walked and Alzheimer's team too. And I'm doing it for the eighth year this year uh, to join a support group or look for other support. Look for different people beyond just your immediate family who can help you in little ways. Get help from other professionals or resources on how to handle, manage the behaviors mm -hmm. as well as the care itself so that you're not so stressed out. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a quick example. You know that those behaviors are coming, whether it's the repeated questions or the agitation. So how it's you can't fix them. Mm -mm. So how are you going to cope with it? How are you going to manage it? And you learn tools for that. And that's one of the ways that I help people. Yeah. Very, very helpful. And you even added some new strategies there at the end. Thank you. <laughs> Didn't want to forget them. They're important. Very important. Um, we're coming to the end of our interview, and I want to take a moment to see if you had any final words of advice or anything else that you wanted to share with us that I didn't get a chance to ask you, but you know it's truly important for those of us who are caregivers to someone with dementia. The important thing is don't try to do it by yourself. Hmm. I think we have in some, uh, indirectly uh, talked about that, that it's not in the, your loved one's best interest either and it's definitely not in your best interest because it will be just harmful to you and that's not helping anybody so get the information get the support get the resources uh look for uh, good uh, professionals and advice that can help you through this journey uh the unfortunate thing is that as it goes along it's not going to get any easier and don't try to do it yourself because it, it's not good for you or them but whatever you're doing, you're doing it from your heart. You're doing it because you know that they can't take care of themselves. So you have to do it for them as well as yourself. 
It's a great advice. It was also very therapeutic. Uh, <laughs> coffee and interview episode. Thank you for the free therapy. <laughs> I'll send you my bill in the map. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was getting it for free. No, just kidding. But, um, but Bill, thank you so much for being here today for this episode and for talking about uh, this side of the world of dementia, which is caregivers and uh, resources, support strategies for caregivers of loved ones. Uh, who live with dementia. And, and again, it's it's a topic we don't cover enough, but it's so critical because caregivers, you know, are responsible for the lives of other people. And so how do we make sure that they're empowered to do that work? Um, I also know that uh, we're going to have all these resources and links in the description of the podcast episode, including your company's information, because you do a lot of work in this area and can point us in the right direction or help us if we're caregivers and need that kind of support. So thank you for that and for allowing us to share some of those resources with our listeners. It's been a pleasure and honor. I hope uh, your listeners uh, found this helpful and supportive. Yes, I did. Thank you so much for being here. Coffee and interview to our listeners. Again, the resources are in the description. Bill, thank you for everything. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day.